This recording is a production of Mennonite School Services, a ministry of Faith Builders Educational Programs. More recordings are available on our website, www.christianlearning.org. This session was recorded at our teachers' conference on October 14 to 16, 2011, in Guy's Mills, Pennsylvania. Well, good evening. It, it is a pleasure to be here. And yes, for such a time as this, there were some topics that when this uh, theme was suggested to me that I felt that I wanted to address uh, that have been on my heart for a long time, and uh, they may be different uh, topics than what you would expect. Uh, You know, the verse that came to my mind in relation to this theme was that verse in uh, Chronicles that says, the children of Issachar knew the signs of the times and what Israel ought to do. Now, in that case, it was an issue of whether David was going to be king of just two tribes or he was going to be king of all the tribes. And uh, that had not happened. He was just king of Judah and Benjamin. And uh, these children of Issachar, who were with those other ten tribes, they sensed that it was time to make David king of all the tribes. And I like that verse. The children of Issachar were men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Now, tonight we want to speak about music, nurture them in song. And you might say, what in the world does that have to do with this topic? Well, I have a tremendous concern, and uh, it'll come out in the evening. Uh, There are two objectives of this evening's message. One is to convince you that music and singing is just as important as any other spiritual activity. Uh, Just as important as prayer. And I I want to convince you of that if I can. And then the second thing I'd like to talk about is what kind of music is the church going to have? Now, the reason I'm concerned about this in relation to Christian school teachers is because a lot of people are not aware of the fact that children have a window of opportunity for learning to sing. How many of you are aware that a child can learn a foreign language relatively effortlessly if it's done between the ages of about three and ten? How many know that? What most people don't realize is the same thing is true with music. It has been proven by research that if a child does not learn to carry a melody and accurately hear pitches between the ages of 2 and 11, he will be permanently handicapped in that area of his life. Just like he could learn a foreign language later, he can also learn to sing. But it will be much more difficult, and it never will be quite what it would have been if that child had not learned to sing between the ages of 2 and 11. And so the thing that really troubles me is we have far too many children that are passing through that window of opportunity and are not learning to sing during that time. And so uh, I want to convince all of you who are Christian school teachers to make sure that there are no children who are left behind, to quote our our, uh, former president. In fact, if you're a mother here tonight, you play the most crucial role in this whole thing because the best thing that can happen to a child is for a mother to sing in the home because that child is going to hear only the soprano, only the melody. In church, they hear the four parts. If they listen to a a CD, they hear four parts. And they never get that pure ear training. That was a privilege I had. My mother was a singing mother. If she was not singing, we knew she was sick. I mean, otherwise... And I can probably sing one-third of the songs in the church hymnal, all the verses, and no credit to me. It was my mother sang them. She had them memorized, and I learned them from her. And all of us children got that wonderful ear training. Everyone in our family learned to sing at a very young age. People thought it was my dad. He was the musician. He was the one who knew music. Mother couldn't read any music. She couldn't sing a part. But she had a good, true soprano, and she ear-trained all of us without even trying, just out of her heart of song to God. So that's the first reason why I'm concerned. I don't want any children to pass through our schools, come through our communities, who do not learn to sing. That's a very serious uh, omission, which I'm going to speak more uh, particularly about. The second thing I'm concerned about is we have become a consumer culture. There was a time when you wanted, if you wanted to enjoy music, you had to go somewhere and sing with somebody. There was no... There were no records, there were no CDs, there were no Blackberries. 
Oh, is that what they put music on? <laughs> I think I have that wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't have one, so I don't know what you do with them. <laughs> anyway, they didn't have any of those things. And so, but they had singing schools. And they had other activities where people went and sang as a community together. And if you wanted to enjoy singing, you had to go to church or to a singing school or somewhere. And you were not a listener, you were a participant. But we have become a consumer society and our children have become listeners of music. And many of them never become singers. And the promises in the Bible are not made to listeners. They're made to singers. You do not get a blessing from God, except perhaps some encouragement, but the blessings the Bible talks about in relation to singing or music have nothing to do with listening. It has to do with participation. And we must have our children become participants. The second, third thing that I'm concerned about <clears throat> is our churches are tending toward lighter and lighter music. And the problem with that is the lighter music also carries a lighter text. It's just almost in, in, invariable. Your, 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 your good, solid music uh, or text that says something like this, I thank thee, Lord, that all of life is touched with pain, that shadows fall on brightest hours, that thorns remain, so that earth's bliss may be my guide and not my chain. Now, you're not going to sing that to heaven came down and glory filled my soul. That kind of a tune does not, does not support that kind of thought and depth. And I'm concerned because I think what we sing is basically going to have a lot to do with how much spiritual depth and how, how solid we are in our faith and understanding of what life is all about, reality. And the fourth thing that I'm concerned about is if we're going to have CCM and uh, music that's just been written in the last 50 years or less, we're going to lose 2,000 years of hymnody. We have a tremendous heritage of hymnody, 2,000 years of hymnody, by the very best people who understood life the best. And the modern mentality is to just simply ignore that whole history of hymnody and sing only what is written today. And I think that's a tragedy. <clears throat> so those are the four things that I'm concerned about and why I'm addressing school teachers, because these things all can be cultivated or can be dealt with in the Christian day school. Now, I'd like to begin with a song, and it's 311 in the hymnal. Uh, you'll know it by memory. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> Why don't you stand to sing this? The soul guide me will give to Now you may be seated. Who was William Williams? If you look on the left side, you will see he wrote the text. Has anybody ever heard of him? Nobody's heard of William Williams. Well, William Williams was the, uh, the man to whom is credited the great revival of Wales in the 1700s. He was a contemporary of John Wesley, John and Charles. Uh, he was sort of a combination of John and Charles and Isaac Watts all put together. He wrote 900 hymns. He rode half the distance on horseback in his lifetime that John Wesley rode on his. He wasn't covering as large an area. And uh, was responsible <clears throat> for probably uh, an even greater revival in a particular area than what John Wesley was. But it was an unusual revival. It was not a revival of preaching. It was a revival of singing. Now, there was some preaching done, but the, uh, the records tell us <clears throat> that a sermon did not... Uh, uh, did not get very long before somebody burst out in song and the rest of the evening was singing and the conviction came during the singing of the songs that he wrote. And this song that we just sang became practically the national anthem of Wales. And uh, for many years afterward, and maybe even still today, 
Uh, there was no public meeting that was ever closed without this song being sung. <clears throat> if you went out in the morning at about 5.30, 6 o'clock, <clears throat> you would see miners in the 1700s walking to the mines to work, singing this song and other songs that he wrote. Uh, and the, the uh, power of the gospel was in these songs. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> let's go back a little bit further. Let's go back 2,500 years. And uh, you don't need to turn to this, but in 2 Chronicles 20, verses 1 to 30, <clears throat> we have an incident where some singers went out uh, in a battle against the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Edomites. And uh, as they were singing... God caused these armies to fight each other, and they all destroyed each other. And uh, Israel spent three days gathering up the spoil and coming back to Jerusalem, and it said all the nations feared around them. But the interesting thing about that passage is <clears throat> the man who stood up in the middle of the whole thing to say what was going to happen, and Jehoshaphat calls him a prophet later in the chapter. His name was Jehaziel. Does anybody know who Jehaziel was? He was one of the singers. He was a son of Asaph. And Jehoshaphat calls him a prophet. We're going to see later in the evening why uh, that was the case. But uh, here was this singer that prophesied and basically masterminded this whole thing and this incident that you know about took place. That's very interesting. Well, <clears throat> I'd like to uh, have you look at your handout. You have a handout there, and I have it here on you won't be able to read it very well. I made my type a little too small. <clears throat> I've entitled this, Sing the New Song. And there are reasons, and I have scriptural reasons here, why everybody should be singing. The first one that you see there is songs result in spiritual, supernatural enablement. Now, we all know about Paul and Silas in prison, but... <clears throat> uh, we don't think about this the way we should. That We, we say, well, that's what they did. They, they sang in prison and that's what happened. But we don't connect the fact that we have the same resource. We had a couple visit us uh, here a couple years ago. She brought in her concert harp. Jeffrey was still living. He played the piano. She played the harp and we all sang. Her name was Olivia. Her husband's name was Decio. They had spent their whole life in Christian service and they came to visit us. But they had a very unusual thing happen to them several years before this. They were in a, a hotel in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, <clears throat> there had been a couple of murders in the city, and the word had gone out that people were supposed to be very careful about who they uh, let into their houses because of these uh, thugs that were loose in the city. And DCO and Olivia had not heard the warning, and they had left their hotel door open because they were expecting guests, and they wanted them just to be welcome to walk in, and in walked these thugs. And they ordered them to, to the floor, and uh, DCO did that, but Olivia did not. She stood up, and she walked toward them singing a hymn, and they left. Now, that won't always happen that way. But I've asked many people, you know, this question comes up among non-resistant people, what would you do if some people, somebody like that came into your house? And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I wonder how many of you would have said, I'm, I would sing. Now, most of you would say you would pray, and you certainly should, and she probably was praying, and certainly Decio was. <laughs> but singing is a spiritual resource, and I give the, second, the reason why in, verse, in, in the, first, the second part of the outline. Because songs cause God to come and dwell in our experience. It says, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. The other verse that I had there was the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, there are many ways to express the joy of the Lord. Singing is only one of them. But it is a source of strength. Because God comes when he hears his song. And the reason I think he does is because... God originated song. He is a singer. It says, he will joy over us with singing. I can't wait to hear God sing. Can you imagine what that must sound like? Anyway, he's a singer. And when, when he created the world, it says, the morning stars sang for joy. Jesus sang before he went to the Mount of Olives. And I don't think he did that, or, or the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't think he did that just to bolster his spirits. 
I think Jesus knew that song was a powerful resource that he needed in addition to prayer or coupled with prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because songs cause God to dwell in our experience. David knew that. Uh, the Bible says David's a man after God's own heart. God's a singer. David was a singer. I think that's part of what it's talking about there. But David somehow realized that if he was going to have a powerful kingdom, he had to have God at the center of his kingdom. And the way he decided would be the best way to do that would be to appoint singers in the temple 24-7 doing nothing but singing. There were, I think I have it listed here. Um, <clears throat> Down there at, uh, under B, I think it is. 6,000 officers he appointed, dead judges, 4,000 porters, and 4,000 full-time musicians. I think there's a reason why David's kingdom was the high point of Israel. There was constant praise at the center of that kingdom. All right? <clears throat> and during David's reign, the kingdom expanded geographically, to ten times the size that it was when he came into office. And I think this had a lot to do with it. I don't know if David out there with his harp realized that his singing had something to do with his conquest of that lion and that bear that came after his animals. I don't know where he put this, got this connection. But somewhere David got the idea that it was very important to have song at the center of his kingdom. All right? <clears throat> A third thing that we learn from the scripture is songs open us to the world of the spirit. We have another battle here. It's the time of Elisha. And the northern kingdom <coughs> was uh, uh, allied with Edom and Judah against Moab. And they ran out of water. You know the story. Uh, and in the end, they were told to dig ditches. And they, the, the enemy saw that it looked like blood. And they, they got scared and, and fled. But anyway, before that happened... They came to Elisha and said, we need help. And Elisha said, bring me a minstrel. And it says, when the minstrel began to play, the spirit of the Lord came upon Elisha. You see why I'm concerned about this. John Risser spoke in our congregation years ago. I don't remember what his sermon was about, and I don't remember anything else he said, but I remember one statement he made that stuck in my head like a cockleburr ever since, and it was this. Beware of the young man in your community who does not sing. I don't know what he, I never asked John Risser what he meant by that statement, what, what was in his mind. But that young man is spiritually handicapped. He cannot really enter into what we're talking about. And that's a tragedy because we live in a world, we just heard it tonight, of tremendous opposition. The church is besieged at this point, always has been, but we sense the tremendous danger that we're in as, 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 a Christian, uh, community, as Christian communities. And we need these spiritual resources. And that's why I wanted to talk about this. For such a time as this, we must have our people sing. It was said of Martin Luther that his songs did more damage to his enemies than his sermons ever did. You know, we tend to look at music as sort of an optional thing. We sing a couple songs and we have devotions and then we have the real service, the sermon. I think perhaps the singing, if it's done the way it should be, is perhaps the most strengthening part of the whole service for the reasons I've just given Number four, songs open up prophetic insight and wisdom. Now, <clears throat> this is a very interesting scripture. The sons of Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun were appointed by David to prophesy with timbrels and with cymbals and some other instrument. Now, remember I told you back there when we were uh, talking about Israel... Uh, <clears throat> And I told you that Jehaziel, the musician, prophesied. Do we need, how many think we need a prophetic word today? Did you ever connect music with it? When you need guidance, do you sing? 
When you say, Lord, I, I really need guidance. And then you break forth in song. Did you ever do that? You should. Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit. King Saul, uh, he was told by Samuel, you're going to go out here and you're gonna, there are going to be some prophets come down a hill and you're gonna, the Spirit of the Lord's going to come upon you. And he went out and these, these prophets are coming down the hill uh, making music. I think it was instrumental music. And, and he was filled with the Spirit. Songs open up prophetic insight and wisdom. Look at the verse I have here. Blessed are the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance. And so, what I'm trying to say to you tonight is, this is a tremendous resource that every Christian needs. And coupled with prayer, it is a powerful resource the devil cannot withstand. And I hope God lays it upon your heart to see it as a real tragedy if there is a Christian who does not sing. He is seriously, spiritually handicapped. And don't be surprised if he does not succeed very well in his Christian life and maybe even loses out totally because he's missing a very important part of his spiritual equipment. Well, you say, well, there's some people that can't sing. Really? Why in the world would God command us in many passages of the New Testament, and he doesn't say, I suggest that you sing. He says, sing unto the Lord, sing unto the Lord, probably a hundred times in the scriptures. Why would he command people to sing who cannot sing? Now, that doesn't say you have to sing perfectly. In fact, Brother Melvin knows a man in our community called Junior Eshelman. He sings. But if you're in the congregation, you know he's there. <laughs> he sat beside me one evening, Sunday evening, and he told people he'd never sit beside me again because I got him off the tune. <laughs> but he had this spiritual resource. He sang. Now, I kind of think if he'd had a mother who sang and he'd had some school teachers to make sure he didn't go through this wind of opportunity and miss out, I kind of think he would sing okay. And my personal belief is that the people that you say can't sing, they didn't get it during this wind of opportunity. If they had, I think they would sing. I think God gave every person the ability to learn this. All right. So that's my burden. That's, that's for such a time as this. We need, we need every spiritual resource, and this is one of the most powerful ones, singing. The th- second point that you see I have listed here is the new song is important to God. All right? <clears throat> it's important to God. Because he sings. I, I have it listed there, Zephaniah 3.17. There are 300 references to song in the Bible. And many of those are commands to sing. And one whole book of the Bible is devoted to song. And the Psalms direct us to sing a new song. And I want you to turn to uh, Psalm 96 in your Bibles. Notice here, three times. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name. Three commands in in two verses. Furthermore, this tells us what we're to sing. We're to sing the new song. It says who is to sing, the whole earth. It says what they are supposed to sing about. They're to sing about his salvation. They're supposed to declare to the whole world that God is a salvaging God. He specializes in taking bad situations and turning them into good situations by his supernatural power and displaying his glory as a result. So, turn to um, Psalm 100. Just some insights. What God has to say about this subject, just just a few passages. 
This is a familiar song. It says, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord all ye lands. Now that's unusual because the heathen make wailing noises to their gods. The reason they do is because their gods are cruel gods. And the heathen are constantly begging their gods to have mercy upon them. And so they wail and they try to get their God's attention and win his pity and his mercy. And we have a God that says, I want my people to be happy. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Come before his presence with singing. Well, now... When you went into the presence of a king back at this time, you didn't dare come into the presence of a king without a gift. And you brought the best gift you could possibly bring. That's what he's referring to. God has specified how you're to come into his presence. But we go rushing into God's presence with our requests and our prayers. I'm not going to ask you how many of you sing before you pray. But that's the designated way to come into God's presence. It all is related to what we've been talking about. God sees singing as a very, very special gift. It's the best gift you can bring to Him. And He says, Come before His presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord He is God. It is He that hath made us. And not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of his pasture. He is a merciful God. He's a shepherd. He's a benevolent Lord who wants nothing but the best for his people. He's so unlike all of the other gods. I heard a a missionary from India one time tell me that the the message that the Indians were so blessed by, especially in the the area where he was, was first of all to hear there was only one God. That, That simplified things quite a bit. And then they were tremendously relieved to discover that that one God was a benevolent God. Ah, what a relief. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Brothers and sisters, I don't think we have taken these scriptures as seriously as we should. I think we view music and singing More than we should, maybe some of us don't, but many of our people view it as an optional activity. It's a nice setting for the rest of the service. Isn't that that sort of how music is is viewed? Maybe helps us with our mood a little bit. Gets us in the mood to hear the sermon. That's not what singing is. In fact, when I look over the congregation, I get the impression sometimes, now I didn't get that here tonight. You blessed me no no end. I mean, I'm going to enjoy this weekend. In fact, we can spend the weekend singing as far as I'm concerned. But a lot of people, I, I look, oh, and it, it just grieves me. You can see by the way they're singing. You know, it's neither here nor there to them. It should be. Now, if God's people don't realize how important music is, the heathen do. Are you aware that there are no heathen that have ever suggested that music is morally neutral? That is a product of the Western mind in the last 50 years. The heathen all know that spirits respond to music. And they know exactly how to get the response they want. It's only people in this country who want to believe that they can do whatever they want to with music that have generated this idea that music is amoral. Socrates said, let us write the words to the music of a nation and we do not care who writes its laws. Do you know that music was one of the five important subjects, major subjects in a Greek school? It was important to them that every boy especially learned to sing with the lyre. I told my daughter when she started teaching school, if I had it to do over again, with what I believe now. Music would be a major subject right along with arithmetic and literature and all those other subjects. We've always, you know, two times a week, the other subjects for five times a week. This is an important subject. The Greeks thought it was. I told you what Socrates said. Here's what Plato said, his student. The introduction, now listen, this is very interesting. The introduction of a new kind of music must be shunned 
as imperiling the whole state since the styles of music are never disturbed without affecting the most important political institutions. That is quite a statement. The introduction of a new kind of music must be shunned as imperiling the whole state since the styles of music are never disturbed without affecting the most important political institutions. And Aristotle, who then was a student of Plato, said this. They all had their comments about music because it was a very... They realized. Now, of course, they did not have the God of heaven involved uh, with with their singing, but but they knew that music had something important to do with, with, with the dynamics of life. Aristotle said, music directly represents the passions and states of the soul. If one listens to the wrong kind of music, he will become the wrong kind of person. Music was important in Israel's national life. I've already already told you that. In fact, there were 288 well-trained singers that were trained specifically for the purpose of training the rest of the nation to sing. David saw this as something very important, and I'm trying to make the connection between the high point of Israel's history under David and this particular institution which he established at the center of his kingdom full-time, constantly in the temple. You have this praise going up to God. What does the New Testament say about song? Well, it says song is the authentic expression of the Spirit-filled life. Sing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Be filled with the Spirit is the verse that precedes it. I've often thought in talking to the... uh, This recording is a production of Mennonite School Services, a ministry of Faith Builders Educational Programs. More recordings are available on our website, www.christianlearning.org. This session was recorded at our teachers' conference on October 14 to 16, 2011, in Guy's Mills, Pennsylvania. Charismatics, you know, if the Bible was going to say that the, uh, the speaking in tongues was the evidence of the Holy Spirit, here's where he should have put it. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in Tongue. No, it isn't tongues. It's songs. Spirit-filled singing is the infallible evidence of the Holy Spirit filling the person's life. And the second thing we learn from the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, By Him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. Now, in the Old Testament, they brought a sacrifice. There's a parallel being made here. They brought a sacrifice to the Lord. And what kind of sacrifice did they bring? They brought the best lamb they could find. They didn't find one with a broken leg or one that didn't have a tail. They brought the very best lamb they could find. Here is my justification for pursuing excellence in singing. Excellence in heart, excellence in voice, excellence in every part of this. We want to bring God a perfect offering because it's the counterpart of the Old Testament sacrifice. Well, let's move quickly into the second part of this. I told you I had two objectives for this meeting. The one was to convince you that singing is not optional, to convince you that In your schools, we must make sure that children don't get through that window of opportunity without learning to sing. And let me just give you a little practical uh, hint here. Maybe you're already doing this, but the schools where I was principal, I basically said that no part singing was to be done before grade four. And it probably should have been grade five. Because we want the children in those lower grades. I'm not saying you can't sing some rounds. I'm not saying you can't do a little bit of part singing. But by and large, it should be unison singing. Because there are children in those lower grades who still need ear training. And we don't want one of them to grow up without this resource. The other thing that needs to happen in our communities is the boys need to know that it is manly to sing. Well, you know the problem. All right. All right. And the best way for that to be, of course, is if you have men, good, red-blooded, he-men in your congregation (laughs) who sing and love to sing and promote singing. All right. Well, what kind of songs are we going to sing? We want the best music 
as an offering to God. And some of what we have to sing, I'm afraid, sounds pretty trite to him. We want good, good singing. Fortunately, God has given us a copy of the new song. Does anybody know where it's found? This new song he keeps telling us the whole way through the Bible, sing a new song, sing a new song, sing a new song, sing a new song. He gave us a copy of it. Does anybody know where it is? Revelation Revelation 5, turn to it. I want to talk a little bit about expression before we read this. Now, you're here at Faith Builders. I know there are people who teach writing here. I know there are people who teach literature. I know there are people who teach all kinds of expression. Teaching is taught here. There are basically four principles of effective communication. The first one is that whatever you're going to communicate has a theme. Okay? How many, well, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but we're, we've all been at a church service already where when, somebody, when you left the service, somebody said, what was the sermon about? And you said, well, let's see, he said something about it. I really don't know what it was about, but it was a good sermon. <laughs> Vance Havner said about those kinds of sermons that he determined early in life that if he went to a church service, he was going to get something out of the message, whatever it took. Now he said... He always has managed to get something out of the message, but he's had a few close calls. (laughs) That was because the sermon really did not have a theme. All right? For good communication, there has to be a good unifying theme. And your writing teacher, your speech teacher, your sermon preparation teacher, your school teacher, your uh, pedagogical teacher, any expression that you are taught, they're going to say, introduce that theme at the very beginning. Make it very clear what this article is about or this speech. All right? The second principle... That theme will have to be repeated or people will not remember it, okay? So the second principle of good communication, and by the way, this isn't just something God told us. This is what people have learned from life itself, that this is the most effective way to get your message across. It has to be repeated. This theme has to be repeated often enough so that it is ringing in everybody's ears when they finish reading the essay or finish hearing the sermon or whatever. However, in order for this to be effective, there has to be variety. Variety, of course, keeps people's interest. Not only does it do that, but it permits you to repeat something in a different way to cast a different light on it. And so you have this theme, but then you have your three points underneath it, and each one is another way of looking at this theme. And so you have repetition but they're all different. So you've got to have both. You've got to have repetition, and you've got to have variety. And if this is done well, the the preacher or the essay writer makes a point, then there's some illustrations, and uh, there's some uh, quotes maybe and whatever, then they make another point, and it's different, but it's it's the same theme, and and, and you do that uh, the whole way down through, and then you finally come to a conclusion which harks back to the theme and wraps it all up at the end with a, with a climactic ending of some sort. Those are just the basic laws of good expression. Whether it's an essay, whether it's a sermon, whatever it is, that's just the way it has to be done for maximum effect. Now, you can get by with less, but if you really want it to be good, if you really want it to be a classic, if you really want somebody to pick it up 100 years from now and say that was a good piece of uh, material... If you really want people to remember it, you've got to obey this. There's just no way about it. Now, the question that I have is, why would we think music would be any different? What happens if uh, somebody has a theme and they just keep saying it the same way over and over and over again or something very similar, over and over and over? What happens? 
and yet we have music that just repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats. And people say, oh, I like that. Well, maybe they like it, but it's not a very good way to, to express anything. On the other hand, you, you have music that just sort of goes on and on and on, and nothing ever repeats. It's just sort of stream of consciousness, consciousness music, and it doesn't any go, go anywhere. It, it sort of ends finally. <laughs> now, <clears throat> we're going to read this passage. This is the new song. I'm drawing a parallel here between written expression and musical expression because I don't really see that there's going to be any difference in terms of the way they have to be structured to have maximum effect. And so we're not going to, there's no, there no, there's no notes here. We're not going to have any music. But we have a text. Does it do that? Let's look. It says, verse 8, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Here it is. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. What is the theme? Say it. Thou art worthy. All right? The first movement is why he is worthy. And it tells it. This is the first stanza. This is the first variation on the theme. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and has made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. Now that's, that, that, that shows why he's worthy. He was able to do all of that with the likes of us. That's the first repetition of the theme. All right? <clears throat> Let's go on. And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. So first of all, we had four beasts and four and 20 elders. Now the angels join and now we have the second variation. We're still talking about the worthiness. This is not why he's worthy. This is how worthy he is. Same theme, varied repetition. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So now we've had the theme repeated twice. Two aspects of that theme. And now we have every creature which is under heaven joining this. And we have this. Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. So now we have the fourfold praise of all creation forever. That's the climactic conclusion to this theme. He's worthy, how worthy he is, or why he's worthy, how worthy he is, and the full dimension of his worthiness. Forever. I think that this gives some support, at least, to having our music structured this way. If you notice there, this is the sonata form. Three or four movements in, con in contrasting forms. And uh, I think this passage is a com confirmation of what you, you would call a classical style. We call this classical because it is timeless. If a piece of music is written that is expressed this way, 200 years from now, in some other part of the world, perceptive people will say, that is good music. That has, that, that has some timeless quality to it. That's what we mean by classical. Well, what are the elements? Uh, well, I never put my other... Um, of course, you have it in your hands, so it doesn't matter. What are the elements of the new song? Well, the first element of the new song, or the, uh, if we're going to transfer this to music, will be <clears throat> a memorable and dominant melody. Melody is the personality of the song. Are you aware that when the Bible talks about music, it almost always, well, not always, 
when it does, but when it mentions anything about uh, what we're talking about, it says Isaiah 23:16, Isaiah 51:3, Amos 5:23-24, and Ephesians 5:18 and 19. And when it talks about singing, it says, "Make melody in your heart." So the important part of the song is the melody. That's the personality of the of the song. And good melody has repetition and variety, interesting intervals, accidentals, chromatics to give it color. And uh, <clears throat> let's, let's look at, uh, at what a good melody does. Could you take your hymnals? And would you turn to um, <clears throat> uh, number four? Number four. Why is this song such an enduring song? Why is it found in virtually every hymnal and has been for ever since it has been written? 200 years. It's been in almost every hymnal. Why? Does, it, does it fit this? Well, let's look at it. The theme is there at the beginning. So me do. So me do. That's the theme. Okay? Then we have uh, a little bit of something different there. Uh, But again, it's not completely different. If you look, it it has some similarity to that, that, uh, what follows that theme. And then you have the theme again, so me do. But it doesn't do the same thing. The first time it went so me do re do ti do. This time it goes so me do so. Okay? Then we have re, mi, fa, mi, re, do. If you look up in the end of the first score, you will see we have a re, mi, fa, mi, re. There at the end of the first line. So there's a subtle repetition there of that musical phrase at the end of the first line. And then, of course, we have that repeated again. And then we have an inversion of the theme, do, mi, so. And then we have a conclusion the highest note in the soprano is there, that law that you see. And then not only do we have the soprano giving us a, a conclusion, but we have the tenor giving us a conclusion. So we have a double. We have a double conclusion to this song. And when you sing it, uh, you, of course, don't think about any of that. But it makes its impression. It, 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 it is a song that expresses a classical progression of a theme and concludes. And, and, and you just feel all of that. You feel the satisfaction of the way it, it proceeds. You feel the satisfaction of the way it ends. And uh, it, it just is a, is a wonderful piece of music. Let's, let's sing it. <clears throat> listen, listen to the repetition, especially at the beginning of the second score. And then listen to that inversion in the middle of the third score. And then listen to the double conclusion at the end. Do me so, come thou descend. Now your music that just repeats and repeats and repeats just doesn't really do that. It just doesn't. Uh, and it does not, it's not going to be timeless. It's not going to be in every hymnal. Those songs are going to come and go. In fact, let me make some comment. There's a difference. Some people say, well, the church has always used the songs that were sung in society. Yes, but they used folk music. They did not use pop music. There's a difference between folk music and pop music. Pop music is written for commercial purposes. It's written to catch people's attention. It's here this, in this generation, it's gone, and it it, it comes and goes. Folk music doesn't. Folk music is music that has been around for a long time and has been disciplined by time. And there's something timeless about it, and generation after generation sings it. That's the music the church has always adopted, not pop music. In fact, if you read Martin Luther, he had very, very definite ideas about which music in his society was suitable for church music and which was not. And it was the folk music that he was interested in that uh, 
has a timeless quality about it. Now let's turn to another song. We'll just do a couple of these. This one will be um, 35. All right. We have a bit of a theme established in that first uh, uh, phrase where, uh, where you see, indulge my humble claim, you have uh, sola ti do ti, and then you have over where thou art my hope, my joy, my rest, you have a re do re mi, it's, it's that same pattern, okay? Then you have an exact repetition of that first line, next, and then you have uh, <clears throat> It, heading then toward the, the conclusion. And again, you have a high point there in the law. You have a high point in the tenor. And this song is unique because it has a third climactic element. Notice that dissonant note above make. Now, when this song is sung, I'm always listening for that dissonant note. And most congregations don't do it very well. And I cringe because that's the prettiest part of the whole song. Let's see if you sing it right. It all depends on you altos. Do so, great God. That is a classic. It has appeared in every Mennonite hymnal since it was written. And I suspect it will appear in every future one. All right, let's turn to one more. 188. This has a very interesting pattern. It has an interval pattern, rise glorious, and then it has a stepwise pattern, conqueror rise, then it has an interval pattern, then it has a stepwise pattern, and then something else happens, and then it inverts, and you have a step down, and then an interval up, and then you see what it's doing there. It's, It's a subtle repetition of what's been going on in the whole song. And then the interesting part about it is you have another variation introduced here. Those of you who play the piano know that it changes keys. Thy changes from the key of C to the key of G. And then it changes back to the key of C. And and you're not aware of any of that. But it's a variation that makes its impression uh, while it's doing its repetition. And then, of course, it builds also to a conclusion. You have your high point in the soprano. You have your high point in the tenor. Uh, It's just a really classically constructed piece of music. Let's sing two verses of this. Do so me do, rise glorious. All right, I think we'll leave that. Uh, So the the melody should dominate, and that's really what makes the song largely a timeless piece if it is according to uh, a timeless, effective expression. A rich and varied harmony uh, that supports the melody but never dominates. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, has a beautiful harmony, but the melody is always dominant. If we'd sing that again, it'd be very obvious. A subtle rhythm. How many of you can feel your heartbeat sitting here tonight? That's a relief. Because if you would have said you did, I'd have told you to go to the dispensary immediately. A, 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 A rhythm that is felt is a sick rhythm. A rhythm that dominates is what I should say. A rhythm that dominates is a sick rhythm, it, uh, unless it's uh, honored Christian soldiers or something where uh, it's, it, the rhythm must dominate because of the theme of the, of the song. So a subtle rhythm that supports the, the melody along with the harmony, and then a satisfying conclusion. And the music does not tell a different story from the words. About 100 years ago, a song came into Christian uh, singing, How many know the song, Since Jesus Came Into My Heart? That song scandalized the Christian world when it came into the the Christian church with its strong, syncopated rhythm. And when you think about it, uh, since Jesus came into my heart, what peace and joy, I mean, it doesn't sound very peaceful and joyful to me. 
it, it, the, the, the music there just contradicts the song. Another one uh, is, uh, Down at the cross where my Savior died. <laughs> is that how you want to sing about the cross? What about this one? Um, um, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. <laughs> ha, it was a lark. <laughs> See, we don't think about these things. We're doing all kinds of strange things with our music. I like a song. We're going to conclude with this one, 37. I like a song that has a, a melody and a harmony and a rhythm that is all in its proper proportions, and you could analyze this one. It, it basically, you can look at it and see the same things we saw in the other one. But then the text, look at this. Eternal Father, when to thee, beyond all worlds by faith I soar. Before thy boundless majesty, I stand in silence and adore. You're so far above me that all I can do is just stand in awe. But, look at this. This great God, who is totally inaccessible, or could be, is by my side. Thy voice I hear, thy face I see. Thou art my friend, my daily guide. God over all, like I said in the first verse, yet God with me. Isn't that something? But it gets better. And thou great spirit in my heart. Oh, it's not just beside me, it's in me. Doth make thy temple day by day. The Holy Ghost of God thou art, yet dwellest in this house of clay. Blessed Trinity, in whom alone all things created move or rest. High in the heavens thou hast thy throne. Back on that first verse again. Thou hast thy throne within my breast. Now you don't get that with the kind of music people are singing today. Once a year, I get invited to go to Shippensburg University to address the students there. And they get a group up to sing, and they're trying to bless us. But I'm going to tell you very frankly, by the time they're finished, I have to really work to get my inspiration back. <laughs> they claim they're worshiping, and I'm being destroyed inwardly. I don't understand how that is. But it's not this kind of music, and it's not going to produce the same kind of response from God that we had. It's got to be a better kind of music than that, I think, before God really is going to show his strength in our experience. Let's sing this song, all four verses, as a concluding gesture. <clears throat> oh, eternal Father, I trust that you will all go back and make sure that all of your children learn to sing and can carry a melody before the age of 11. I hope you all go back and make sure that your people are not consumers of music, but participants. I hope you all go back to help the church in the direction of this kind of music that we were just singing. I know some of you are singing children's songs. You're singing those little bubbling songs, and the children, are it's fun for them to learn to sing better songs. And... If you really hold these up as good songs, they will rise to the challenge. Songs like, um, um, I can't, uh, I had one in my mind, but it, it just disappeared right now. Let, let all things now living. Children can enjoy singing a song like that. And I don't see how we're going to bring children into our churches singing a more serious kind of music if we have them singing trivia, even in those younger grades. I mean, they, it, some of the songs that are fun songs are good songs, but some of them are just plain down trivia. And I, w I wish we would have a better kind of music. And let's not lose the 2,000 years of hymnody. Let's keep the old hymns in our repertoire. Remember, the children of Issachar knew the signs of the times, and they were men of understanding and knew what Israel should do. And I personally feel that we need to make a corrective in our music, in our churches, and move things in a different direction if we're going to have good, solid people with a good theology 
and a good understanding of reality and human experience. We're going to have to sing the good songs. God bless you. For more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit the docforlearning.org.